0: student loan interest relief that's going to add to inflation so don't do it gas tax holiday that's going to add to inflation so don't do it reducing tariffs on china that's going to reduce inflation so you know give that serious consideration so everything needs to go you know in a serious way through the inflation prism which is not the way people are used to making public policy normally that isn't the main concern
1: Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Jason Furman. Jason is the Aetna Professor of the Practice of Economic Policy jointly at Harvard Kennedy School and the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Previously, Jason served eight years as a top economic advisor to President Obama, including serving as the 28th Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors from August 2013 to January 2017, acting as both President Obama's chief economist and a member of the cabinet. During this time, Jason played a major role in most of the major economic policies of the Obama administration. Jason also served under President Clinton. He holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University. Since leaving government, Jason has become one of the most insightful and prolific analysts and commentators on the most important public policy issues of the day. Jason, welcome to the podcast. I read everything you write, which sure is a lot, and I always learn something from you. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. You were born and raised in New York City. Tell us a bit about your family background, early academic interests and mentors.
0: I grew up in Greenwich Village in New York City. My mother was a school psychologist. My father uh, was a failed law professor who left that to go into um, his family's real estate business. And I was you know, interested in economics actually from a young age. My father had been pursuing a PhD in it. Um, he never finished it, but we talked a lot about economics from you know, as long as I can remember. We also talked a lot about politics and a lot about you know, just the current events going on in the world.
1: And you obviously were very interested in current events because you volunteered for the Walter Mondale campaign in the ninth grade. So you're a real early start. How did that come about? And what did you take away from that experience?
0: Yeah, no. In ninth grade, one of my friends was working on the campaign, and I was really interested in politics. I had been reading, actually started reading The Economist magazine in seventh grade, started uh, subscribing to Foreign Affairs Journal in seventh grade. And so this was, you know, the first presidential election that I was really fully aware of. I was really excited to pitch in um, and help. And I'd like to think I was very successful, because if you look at the data... Um, Walter Mondale won Greenwich Village, where I had been canvassing by quite a large margin.
1: What was your takeaway from that, other than the fact that you were really engaged and it got you involved in the political world?
0: I don't know. It was interesting to me. I remember election night, I was at um, Village Independent Democrats. It was a group in Greenwich Village, and we were doing some alternative tabulation of the precinct vote numbers. I don't know exactly what it was. All I remember is I was just handed strings of numbers and a calculator, and I was just keeping track of them and adding them and cross-tabulating them with other numbers just to make sure as a second check on, on the vote count. So it was a way of combining my interest in math, which I loved at the time and still love, and you know the actual world and things that actually
1: mattered. But that's that's a great thing about it, because it it helps in life if you tend to be an optimist, right? And one of the problems with political elections for the, the candidates is they're very binary, right? You win or you lose. But your takeaway was you won in the area where you were working, right? Now, talk about something that's a little bit out of the box here. I've heard you were a skilled New York City juggler. And that takes a lot of hand-eye coordination. For those that don't know it, this is a New York phenomena. I mean, you see some real talent on the streets. And I remember having my wife and kids break out and laughing because when I watched these laws, I, I grabbed a few tennis balls and I had a hard time doing, you know, I started with two tennis balls. I could barely get to three. So tell us a little bit, how did this hobby develop and how many objects can you keep in the air? Now I'm wondering whether
0: we met in the late 80s in in Greenwich Village. So yeah, I just um, got into juggling. I don't entirely remember how. And then I met a group of people actually in Bryant Park um, that were juggling. And they told me about a club in Greenwich Village. And I went twice a week. We met in a gym. And the best jugglers in New York would go there. And we'd share tips and tricks. We'd pass balls and clubs and everything back and forth to each other. I taught myself to unicycle, which is actually quite hard. In terms of numbers, I would perform with up to six balls. I could keep seven in the air for sort of a couple seconds and get it going, but not good enough to perform with it. But I perform with six. Um, Five was pretty straightforward. I can still uh, juggle five things. I do flaming torches, bowling balls, unicycle, (laughs) and and I build a big crowd. I mean, I get sort of about 150 people. Uh, Gathered around, do a show. It had a beginning, a middle, and end. Uh, When I was done, I usually alternated with an escape artist named Billy Bellevue. So I'd do my show, then he'd do his show, then I'd do uh, my show.
1: Well, tell me about the bowling balls. I don't want to go too deeply into this, but a bowling ball is a pretty big thing to juggle. How many bowling balls? I usually, I could do
0: three if they were like the six pound ones or whatever the lightest ones were. Um, but usually I just did one. Um, so I'd say a bowling ball, an apple and an egg was a, a staple. And, and a
1: flaming torch. How many of those would you get up there?
0: Uh, I mean, I could do four, but I've only really performed with three.
1: So I, I want to hear about how your career in academia unfolded and how that led to government service.
0: Yeah, for me, um, I was very academically oriented. I was always doing sort of extra math, reading extra things um, and the like in college. I didn't do a lot of extracurriculars. I was just, again, very focused on classes. I went straight to graduate school, to a, the PhD program in economics at Harvard, and didn't think I wanted to do anything other than research and teach. What happened was in my, I think my third year of graduate school, my advisor came to me and said, there's this guy, Joe Stiglitz, and he's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, and he wanted to interview you about a possible position at the Council of Economic Advisors. And I said, that sounds interesting. You know, maybe I could do that for a year. I did my interview with Joe Stiglitz. He talked for half an hour straight. I smiled and nodded the end of the interview, he told me he thought I was very intelligent and perceptive and that he wanted to hire me. At the time, the other factor going on was there was this woman uh, that I really liked, and she was going to be living in Washington, so I thought I could move for a year, I could take this job and follow her um, to Washington. And uh, it ended up changing my life. Um, I married uh, the woman that I followed to Washington, Eve Gerber, uh, my wife to this day, and ended up discovering that there's a lot more to economics um, than just research and teaching. There's a whole world of of public policy and practical engagement, um, which I loved. And I think I had at least some comparative advantage in, which might be uh, why I loved it and, and have stuck with it to this day.
1: Yeah, I I found something, Jason, that we have in common. Now, I didn't didn't juggle and I wasn't working extra hours doing math and economics, but I also was brought to Washington by a woman I ended up marrying and love very much, Wendy. (laughs) And the fact that she was going to be spending the summer in Washington was a key driver in me getting the the first job I had in Washington, which was at the Pentagon at the time, and, and led to public service. So you went to public service and worked with Joe Stiglitz for the Clinton administration. Um,
0: I told my advisors at Harvard, I'll be back in a year. Don't worry. And then after a year, I really liked it. I ended up staying on for a while with Janet Yellen. Then I went to the World Bank where Joe Stiglitz was. Then I went back to the White House where Gene Sperling was and ended up there for four years. At the end of those four years, George W. Bush won the election And my main advisor, Greg Mankiw, sent me an email, and uh, George Bush had campaigned on a platform of helping education. Greg wrote me, the first thing that George Bush has done to improve education in this country is to get you to come back to Harvard to finish your PhD.
1: For those that don't know it, Greg Mankiw is a very noted Republican economist who played a big role in the Bush administration. So you did have the interest in politics and public policy when you're working with Mondale. So that that was an early sign of of this interest. Now, having worked for both Presidents Clinton and Obama, how are the two alike? How are they different? You know, any anecdotes that help bring these uh, presidents to life?
0: they were both just incredibly smart and incredibly talented but approached things in different ways i would say for bill clinton it was a little bit more bottom up and for obama it's a little bit more top down so if you were designing a program bill clinton would have an opinion on whether the match rate for state government should be 20% or 30% you know he'd say oh 30% no governor you know would do that but if you make it 35 they'll all sign up or something. Obama would never you know, think that he had comparative advantage in whether the match rate in some federal program should be 30 or 35%. He'd really approach it sort of philosophically. What's our ultimate goal here? What are the general types of approaches? And expect his team um, to fill in the details. Now, he probably could have filled in the details better than any of us if he had time, but he also had um, other parts of his job other than just the economy. We had regular time um, when I was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors with President Obama. And the rule was we were in charge of structuring the time, but it couldn't be a specific policy issue. If it was a specific policy issue, that would be the National Economic Council. So it might be something like, what are the causes and consequences of inequality or, you know, something intellectual like that. And these meetings invariably would run late and they'd run later and later and later. And afterwards I went to the chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, and I apologize. I'm like, I'm really sorry. My meeting ran, you know, half an hour late. And Dennis said, that's not your fault. He's really interested in the topic. He wanted to talk about it, but yeah, I felt that way. Even on the campaign in 2008, when I worked for him, he would want to on a campaign strategy call, talk about whether it was better to buy toxic assets or inject equity as a use of the TARP money. And everyone else was like, you need to get elected first. (laughs) If you don't pay attention to like where you're running your ads, you're not going to be president. You don't get to decide.
1: So let's turn to today's economy. So Jason, you were way ahead of the curve in predicting inflation. And today it's at a 40 year high. Help our listeners understand how we got here and how did so many smart people get the inflation story so wrong last year.
0: Yeah. You know, we're in a glass partly full in the economy. The unemployment rate is low. We continue to have a lot of job growth, but partly empty because we have a lot of inflation and real wages are falling at the fastest pace in 40 years. And dealing with this risks plunging us into a recession. Um, how we got here was, I think, you know, a little bit fighting the last war. We, you brought together, together with um, Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke, a process to discuss the lessons learned from the financial crisis. And one of the lessons learned from that that came out of your volume was it's really important to act quickly, to act big, to get ahead of things. And in some sense, the volume, the process that you did, Hank, was very successful, and that we did not. Uh, policymakers this time did not make any of the same mistakes they made last time. They made precisely the opposite mistakes um, this time. So I think it was partly overlearning the lessons, partly not understanding that the financial crisis was a demand shock. This was a supply shock. They're two very, very different things in terms of the impact they have on the economy. And finally, it's not all just you know people being political and ignoring economics. It is the case the Fed got the modeling wrong. You know, Goldman Sachs, your former, former organization, they got the modeling wrong. The IMF got the modeling wrong. And a lot of them were using a model of the economy that was better suited to the way it functions in normal times and not suited to something as large as this. So you needed to actually step outside the sort of Federal Reserve Bank, US model, FERBUS, and ask some deeper economic questions, which aren't that hard, which is you give people way more money than the economy can absorb, it has to go somewhere. And that's probably gonna be prices, not quantities.
1: And so given that we're here now, how worried should Americans be about inflation spiraling out of control? And is this a problem, Jason, we're going to be dealing with for years? And, uh, you know, can it be tamed without a severe recession?
0: I don't know the answer to any of those questions. I am skeptical of spiraling. If by spiraling, you mean it goes from eight to nine to 10 to 12. For something like that, you would need continued large fiscal support, continued low interest rates. Congress isn't going to pass anything new like that. And the Fed was behind the curve but they're catching up very, very quickly. So spiraling, I would rule that out. The question is, does it stay stuck at something like 4% for a while, which would be pretty painful to get it back from four to two, or does it come back to two? I have a tiny bit more hope in the last month or two in some respects. The price data has gotten worse, but wage growth has slowed a little bit. And wage growth for me is the most fundamental part of the whole equation. If wages are growing at four and a half percent a year, then it's possible to get inflation below three. And it's possible wage growth is slowing to that, but you know, but I don't know. And you you don't want to put yourself in this position. People a year and a half ago said, oh, the Fed has tools. If we have too much inflation, the Fed can always handle it. The Fed doesn't have some dial they adjust where they choose the inflation rate. They choose one input into the financial system that then gets randomly magnified by the financial system that then gets randomly magnified into the economy, all in ways we don't fully understand. And so, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And I, I wish I knew the answer.
1: So that really gets us to the recession because because the Fed can't precisely manage this. It's pretty hard to engineer a soft landing isn't it? So this is going to be something that, and at least a number of the people I've talked to say, well, is it likely to be a recession? So the question is, is, how severe is a recession going to be?
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's very likely. If you look at a two-year time horizon, I think it's very likely there's a recession. And I think the questions are, when does the recession start? How long does it last? And the third question is, is a recession enough? You know, we could go into a recession with five and a half percent inflation and come out of the recession with four and a half percent inflation. And recessions tend to take sort of half a point to a point out of the inflation rate. And so it may not even be enough. But yeah, I think there is a recession out there
1: yeah and that's stagflation but it's 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 so hard you know i when you look at everything that's going on how china manages their COVID dilemma here and what that does to supply chains and the global economy the russian invasion of ukraine you know all of these issues but let's let's zoom out a bit to the issue of globalization so it sure looks like the Russian invasion of Ukraine might accelerate a trend toward more market closure. The various shocks to our global supply chains over the past two years have renewed calls to reshore or friendshore our manufacturing capacity. To what extent do you think this is necessary or desirable or or is it simply protectionism? What is the future you see of globalization? You know, it's hard for me to believe we're going to turn the clock back and we're going to end globalization, but it also looks like it's, it's going to be reshaped. And I'd be very interested in your views on this.
0: Yeah, so first of all, I'm an unapologetic supporter of globalization. I think it has benefited people in the United States. I think it has had, you know, even bigger and more profound benefits um, for hundreds of millions and billions of people around the world. I am certainly worried about where it is right now. There is precarious support in lots of different countries around the world in lots of different ways that manifested itself around the immigration issue and Brexit in the UK, around both trade and immigration with President Trump and and continuing trade with President Biden, et cetera. I do have, I'm rethinking a little bit some of the issues around resiliency and national security. They're often used as a guise for protectionism when President Trump used national security as a rationale for not buying steel from Canada and South Korea. That was beyond ludicrous. And you see things like that all the time. But it makes me nervous that all of our advanced semiconductors come from Taiwan, And, you know, you look at Germany right now, they've had eight years since the Russian invasion of Crimea to reduce their dependence on Russian natural gas. And they did nothing during those eight years. And you look back and say, what were they thinking? And, you know, want to make sure we're not in a position like that if anything happens with Taiwan. So I think there are some legitimate national security issues, some legitimate resiliency issues that do bear some rethinking but have to be really guard against being overly broad
1: about it. Jason, you and I have very similar views on this because we clearly are going to need to do things differently, right? In in certain ways, because of national security and multinational companies have to be concerned if they're reliant on any one country or region for some critical part of their supply chain. But it also concerns me to look at United States of America, if our trade policy had been up right up until the invasion, closing markets, right? And if that had been essentially what we were doing, and now we're rallying allies, right, in terms of support for Ukraine and in terms of sanctions on Russia. But looking out the other side here, it's hard to see the U.S. being a global leader if we don't have a proactive, positive economic agenda, right? And uh, we can't let China have more trade with with the whole rest of the world. We don't want to end up isolating US companies and workers from fast growing markets and setting standards for, for products and markets and so on. It's a dilemma.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look at something like the United States in the Pacific. President Obama negotiated the trans-pacific partnership um president trump pulled us out of that president biden wants to re-engage i think he genuinely does care about the region and our relations so he's doing it with the indo-pacific economic framework but he's taken market access off the table <laughs> and so you know how much can you actually get done if the main thing that other countries are interested in in an agreement from the outset we say no now i think it's possible they'll be able to get something done i think it's probably better than nothing, but it's an open question how much better than nothing it ends up being.
1: It sure is. So let's now talk about President Biden. Given all the problems at home and abroad right now, if you had your former job and you were chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, what advice would you be giving the White House and what their major focus should be right now in economic policy? What should their focus be?
0: it's not easy right now. I mean, whether, you know, whatever your debate about what the cause of where we are, we're in a complicated place right now. Certainly there's been some bad luck, things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What I would say is I actually think they roughly have it right on inflation right now. They're supporting the Fed and giving the Fed the space to do what it needs to do. And they've started talking about um, deficit reduction. I think, Hank, I'm less worried about the deficit than you are. But at a time like this, Reducing the deficit is one of the tools the administration has to bring down inflation. And so reaching a deal with Congress that instead of the original Build Back Better has much more savings than it does have spending. So from the very first year, it starts to bring down the deficit. I think that's one way they could help. And then I'd say take a lens. And every single policy we do, look at it through the lens of inflation. Student loan interest relief, that's going to add to inflation. So don't do it gas tax holiday, that's going to add to inflation. So don't do it. Reducing tariffs on China, that's going to reduce inflation. So, you know, give that serious consideration. So everything needs to go, you know, in a serious way through the inflation prism, which is not the way people are used to making public policy. Normally, that
1: isn't the main concern. Yep. Sounds right to me. And it it is a tough place to be because there's very little that they can do that's going to make a big difference in the short term uh, on inflation. Jason, I want to talk now to Jason Furman, the teacher. You co-teach the largest and arguably one of the most important classes at Harvard, principles of economics. So you teach hundreds of students each year. What is your approach to teaching and what are the most important economic lessons you try to impart to your students?
0: Yeah, so one of the my favorite things I've done in my life is teaching this class. It's called EC ten. It's the introductory class. We had eight hundred students in it last fall, and for me, it is about introducing them to an economic way of thinking. These powerful concepts like opportunity cost or thinking on the margin. Um, it's also about getting them to understand that economics is not just you know, how to invest your money in the stock market, it's a lens you can use for everything. If you care about climate change, you care about discrimination, you care about you know, business concentration in the economy, you care about unemployment, you know whatever the issue you care about, economics has something to offer. And so we try to use illustrations and applications from a wide variety of areas, we, as David Labson, who I co-teach the class with, and finally, we we try to bring it pretty up to date. Um, so a lot of intro classes are sort of the wisdom of fifty years ago. Economics has become a really rich, nuanced subject. For example, psychology is a much bigger part of it. Sometimes called behavioral economics, and my co-teacher David Labson brings that in from the very beginning—not just the simplified rational econs, but the Complex human beings and how that changes some of our ways of thinking and conclusions.
1: I tell you, I could have used that because you know I took three or four uh, economics courses at Dartmouth and it, it didn't really do anything for me. I I took statistics and micro and macro and so on, but I tell you, looking at policy through the lens of economics and you know I, I think re- really makes it a lot more interesting and tangible to uh, students. Now I want to switch gears again. So, you know, so let's go back to Harvard. When you were there, you were Matt Damon's roommate. What's his best movie?
0: You know, I Oh, now I'm not even remembering, but um, when I saw him in the one with the helicopter he did around 1995, it was one of his first big movies, Yeah, um, I just cried because the first time I met him, he was sure he'd be a movie star. He told me that I was really lucky to be rooming with him because he'd probably be in a movie before the end of the year. He'd have to leave the room and it would be too late to replace him. So I'd have extra space um, in the room. <laughs> and, um, you know, he ended up being overconfident and he, his prediction was off by I think about two years in terms of, of, of when he actually became a movie star. But yeah, his, his first two movies, that one and, and uh, a John Grisham, uh, whatever uh, whatever one that was. Anyway, those, those two, when I saw them, I just cried because he, he was a very talented actor. He was really, really motivated um, to succeed in this. And um, I was just so happy it, it it's worked out for him.
1: And it's a really hard career to succeed in. Look at all the people that think they're going to be talented. I, I, I've i had a few I've known who, who were sure they were going to be a talented actor. And they ended up being an actor in a few commercials. Yeah. So, look, it, and, and look, I think it's like a lot of things in life. Um, If you had asked people
0: in my class freshman year, you know, who were the best actors in the class, they named three people they would have named him. So he's unusually good at acting, but do I think he's the number one best person his age in the country? No, I'm sure there are, you know, a hundred other people, maybe a thousand other people just as good. So luck played a big part, but it's not just random luck happening to a random person. It's that combination of skill and being prepared for it and being lucky. And, you know, in his case, both of those happened.
1: And being unusually motivated and confident, right? And, yeah. and, you know, so that's, that's a big part of it. Now I'm gonna switch now to reading. You're a prolific reader and you not only read, but you write a lot of book reviews. So how many books do you read a month And Jason, how many reviews have you written now? Because I see a lot of them.
0: So every book I read, I review it on a website called Goodreads. It's like a Facebook for books. I think I've reviewed about 1,200 books there. I probably read about six books a month, about uh, one a week. Now, some of these are, I read graphic novels and plays uh, so those are short. I'm reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to my son. I'm going to put a review of that up when I'm done reading it. But some of them are long, a long economics book or, you know, Don Quixote, which I've read many times.
1: And when you read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, do you, I'm sure when you read books, You know, yourself, you're reading them very quickly. When you read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, do you slow down and read with great expression?
0: I certainly try to, although I don't think I was one of the more talented actors in my uh, freshman class in college.
1: So I found that I read with a monotone, right? And when I I read them, I read them quickly. But the kids got used to it. You, You can get them used to different things. So what is the book you've most enjoyed reading in the last year or two? There's a book
0: by a colleague of mine here named Joe Heinrich called The Weirdest People in the World. Weird stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic. So, you know, you and I would both be weird. Probably most of our listeners are weird by this definition. And it goes through the last 2000 years of history of sort of cultural evolution, how we got to this point that we had this set of attitudes. And it actually made me take the role of culture more seriously in terms of the economy and economic development. But it's a fabulous work of social science combined evolutionary biology, psychology, game theory, economics, history, all sorts of disciplines in one book.
1: Yeah, that sounds really important and deep. To me, it's just amazing. 1,200 book reviews. Now, Jason, I'd like to, to finish this up with your advice to young people looking to start a career in today's very fast-paced and increasingly complicated world. So what what advice do you have for, for listeners or what advice are you giving to, to your students when they come to you and, and, and ask you about career advice?
0: Yeah, it's always dangerous to get advice from people that won the lottery, but I don't know, I'd say a few things. I mean, one, being collaborative is so important. It is, there are very, very few endeavors anymore that don't involve groups working together. Economic papers now tend to have, you know, four or five authors. Certainly working in government is intensely collaborative and sharing credit, making other people look better and, you know, being able to work and get along well with people. I think that is more and more important because, you know, computers are quite good at all the sort of routine stuff. What they can't do is the interpersonal, the management, the empathy, the judgment, and the like. So that's where humans are going to thrive um, going forward. And that's with their connections to each other that make something bigger than themselves.
1: It's interesting that you give that advice, because that is advice that I have been giving, given for 50 years, even before we had computers. I would say to people, You may be really, really, really bright, but you have to, you better be exceptionally brilliant if you think you can go off in your closet and, you know, and make a big difference and change the world. Because everything you do, you're going to have to be able to to work with others if you're going to make a difference. If you're going to make a difference and being collaborative, working as part of a team, dealing with others. Today, that advice is more important than when I gave it. Because it'll be interesting when I see young people and there's a problem somewhere. And I say, well, have you if you called up and talked about this, well, no, I sent a text. And, and so getting people to really figure out how to interact is really important. Yeah.
0: And look, I've seen some jerks succeed. I've seen a lot of people, though, where that caught up with them. Maybe they got one level up, another
1: level up, and then they didn't get further.
0: And they didn't get further because it caught up with them and it didn't work out.
1: That's the other thing you see. It always got everyone has got some strengths and weaknesses. But what happens is, more senior you get, the bigger the job you have, the more your weaknesses are exposed. If you're not collaborative, and if you don't work with and surround yourself with people that you can learn from and and they compensate from some of your weaknesses and so on. So in any event, you and I agree on a lot. We don't agree on everything, but Jason thank you so much. You are a whirlwind of productive activity, and it's always inspiring to talk with you. And I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about. So thank you.
0: It's great to talk to you, Hank.
1: You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank
0: Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.